Okay, last night we started our fellowship on the Jubilee, and we want to continue our fellowship this morning. You see, it's Jubilee 2. We had Jubilee 1 last night. Jubilee is so great, we need Jubilee 2. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Saints, uh, you know, last night we saw that in the time of Jubilee in the 50th year, uh, every man who had sold his possession of the good land, his portion of the good land, was returned to his possession. Was returned to his possession. Uh, every man who, who was left from his family was returned to his family. And we're in, we're in the family of God this morning. Isn't that wonderful? Not only that, we've been released from all slavery. Slavery of Satan, sin, and death. We've been released from that slavery. And anything can become a bondage to us, right? Uh, Ricky even pointed out that our children can become a bondage to us. You know, we need to love our children, surely. But uh, they shouldn't become a bondage to us, right? Where we, we can make our children an idol. We don't want to do that, right? That's just an example. You can make your car an idol. You know, I always say when I see a car parked diagonally in the parking, parking space, I realize this man really loves his car. You know, <laughs> he doesn't want to get it scratched or anything, right? So the car, your car can become an idol to you, something that you love more than the Lord Jesus. And saints, this morning, we love the Lord Jesus supremely. Amen. We love him above everything. Amen. Well, saints, um, you know, in 1 Timothy 2.7, Paul said that he was an apostle, that he was a teacher, and that he was a herald. A herald. H-E-R-A-L-D. A herald. A herald is an official reporter of the Jubilee. We all need to be official reporters of the Jubilee. We need to go everywhere and tell people about the Jubilee, which is really, the Jubilee is a synonym for God's economy. We're talking about God's economy here. We're talking about the Jubilee here. Uh, you know, I was on a plane to Russia in 1993, and I asked the man next to me, I said, what are you going to Russia for? You know, especially in the winter. You know, I was going to Russia in January. And I said, what are you going to Russia for? He said, I'm an economist. He said, the, uh, the economy in Russia just collapsed. You know, when they went to, uh, tried to go to democracy. They, they tried to change the economy too fast. So it collapsed. And uh, he said, they want some advice from me and some other economists. So I said to him, have you ever heard of God's economy? <laughs> he said, God's economy, what is that? So I shared with him, I, I blew the trumpet of God's economy. And saints, we may think that, this is the, that the gospel is just for unbelievers. But the gospel is for believers also. The gospel is for believers also. You know, the whole book of Romans is the gospel of God. Paul said he was a slave of Christ Jesus. He was a called apostle. He was separated to the gospel of God. 
Then in Romans 1.15, he said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In other words, they were all believers, but he was ready to preach the good news to all those believers. And, uh, in, in, you know, of course, you have a lot of things in Romans. We'll touch Romans 8 a little later. But, uh, you know, Romans, you could say, is justification, uh, sanctification, the body of Christ, and the local churches. It's divided into, into four main sections. Justification, sanctification, the body of Christ, and the local churches. So the local churches are a part of the gospel. The body of Christ is a part of the gospel. It's good news that there's a church in D.C. In Dunloring, right? Is there a church in Fairfax? In Fairfax, amen. It's good news. It's good news. The gospel means good news. Good news. And saints, I don't know about you, but when I heard this word ecstasy, that we should have, we should have at least have one time when we're with the Lord and we're in an ecstasy before Him. I got very convicted when I heard this word. Uh, you know, maybe you, maybe you had a, a a long time ago, you had a time with the Lord. You, you said, "Oh man, in 1964, it was just fantastic," you know. But what about 2018? What about now, right? We want to enjoy the Lord to the uttermost today. Amen. And we want, to, we want him to be our ecstasy. Amen. Ecstasy, and if you look it up in the dictionary, it means intense joy or delight. Intense joy or delight. So we want him to be our intense joy, our intense delight. Amen. You know, uh, I was singing a song this morning Ricky said, if a song comes up in you, you should sing that, right? So uh, I was singing in the shower. You know, the church life is a musical. You know, it's, it's just amazing how people just burst out in songs. And I used, to, I used to hate musicals. I'd say, get along with the plot. Come on. You know what I mean. But, uh, but if, you, if you're around the brothers and sisters, you, you'll hear them singing. You know, like, uh, forgive me, I know you've heard this story, but uh, when I was with Dick Taylor in Russia, I, I, uh, I had jet lag so bad. And so I stayed up till 10 o'clock, and then, you know, so I could sleep the whole night. I said, oh, I did it. So I went to bed, and I woke up, and I said, I feel great. I looked at my clock, it was 1 a.m., and, uh, and I stayed up the whole night. I stayed up that whole Russian night. Then early in the morning, Dick Taylor is singing to me through the wall. Jesus, Lord, you're our first love. Then I said, you're the one we love the best. We sang to one another through the wall. Only in the recovery could you do that. You know, you're in the, in the dominations, regretfully, They'll say, let's sing verse 1 and verse 8. And they do that because they want to get home quicker. You know. Uh, anyway. Sorry. I was there. So, the song that came up in my heart is this. Where Jesus is, my joy is there. Where Jesus is, my joy is there. You know, uh, it doesn't matter where we dwell. 
right? On mountaintop or in the dell. <laughs> Where Jesus is, my joy is there. And, you know, I grew up in, in, in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I grew up there. And then I went to school. I went to most of my school in Kansas in college. Then I moved to Houston. And I didn't realize it could be that hot and that humid. I just, I just, my goodness, this is just like a sauna out here. And, and then I moved to Dallas. And the average temperature in Dallas in the summer is 97 degrees. Now, can you imagine? So I really treasured this song when I was in Irving and Dallas and Houston, where Jesus is, my joy is there. Houston was glorious because I had the church life, right? I had Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Saints, I was thinking, I was just thinking a little bit. Saints, it's only in the recovery you hear about enjoying the Lord. Enjoying the Lord. We need to enjoy the Lord. Today, we need to enjoy the Lord. John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, right? Where should we be today? In spirit, right? And we should give ourselves to enjoy him. What's your name, brother? Eric. You're enjoying the Lord, right? <laughs> I can tell you're smiling now. That's good. That's good. You know, uh, people are not going to get saved if we're morose Christians. M-O-R-O-S-E. If our head's down, you know, brotherly, I mean, brother Ricky, not brotherly. That's a compliment to him. Okay. Anyway, uh, uh, he, <laughs> he lifts up our head, right? He's the lifter up of our head. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. He encourages us with himself, with his presence. In Psalm 16, verse 11, uh, David says this, In your presence is fullness of joy. Amen. In your presence is fullness of joy. Of course, this Psalm 16 is about Christ. But it's also about our identification with Christ, our oneness with Christ. So when we're one with Christ, in his presence is fullness of joy. If you've ever been in his presence one time, Amen. you're wrecked. Amen. You just want his presence. Amen. If you have his presence, you have everything. Amen. If you don't have his presence, you've lost everything. Amen. Now, what is his presence? His presence is his smile. It's his smile. We want his smile in this age, Amen. and we want him to enjoy him as our reward in the next age. Amen. So we want his smile. You know, uh, I'm not going to draw this on the board, but, you know, you have, uh, you have, you know, you have that happy face where, where you know, uh, people have T-shirts with that on it, you know, and it's like this. That's how we are when we're enjoying the Lord. <laughs> but if we're not enjoying the Lord, if we're not in his presence, you can reverse that bottom one, turn it upside down, and it's like this, right? And we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like, we want to be enjoyers of Jesus, enjoyers of Jesus. I'm always struck that the Lord put man in a garden. Listen, the Lord commanded us to enjoy him. He trained the children of Israel to live a rejoicing life. 
he put man in a garden named Eden. It wasn't named Georgetown or uh, George Mason. Uh, it was named Eden. And Eden means pleasure. It means pleasure. That means God wants to be man's pleasure. I'm not against Georgetown or George Mason. I love those things. You know what I mean? But Eden means pleasure. God wants to be man's pleasure. God wants to be man's happiness. Listen, let me, let me just quote you from a life study of Genesis. I'll, I'll give you a quote. God wants to make you happy. How about that? Now, how does he make us happy? He may, doesn't ha- make us happy by hitting us on the back and say, cheer up, Brother Ed. Right? He makes us happy with his smile, with his presence. Right. So Eden means pleasure. That means God wants to be our pleasure and our, even our joy, even our entertainment. Right? Just look at this room this morning. This is, this is just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, it's because we want to enjoy the Lord, right? And we love the Lord. When you love the Lord, you enjoy the Lord also, right? When you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, it's hard to say that. Let's say, Lord Jesus, I love you right now. Lord Jesus, I love you. How about one more time? Lord Jesus, I love you. You know, I looked around at the faces. Everybody was smiling when they said that. You know, it's hard to say, Lord, I can't do it. Lord Jesus, you can't say, Lord Jesus, I love you with a frown on your face, right? Because when you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, you have a sense inwardly that he's saying, I love you too. I love you too, Ed. Uh, and saints, uh, we have the word grace in the, in the New Testament, grace. Uh, you know, grace, many people define grace as unmerited favor, which is not wrong. It's not wrong to say that. But uh, it's more accurate to say something else in its definition. If you look up grace in Vine's Expository Dictionary, Vine's Expository Dictionary said, grace is that which occasions pleasure or delight. Pleasure or delight. So grace is God in Christ as the Spirit for our enjoyment. So Paul said, I was given a stewardship of the grace of God. The stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So he had a stewardship. He was full of the enjoyment of God. And he had a stewardship. That same word, that stewardship, the word for stewardship, is oikonomia. is the word for economy. So when, when God's economy is committed to us, it becomes our stewardship. So saints, what that means is, he says, the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, when we're serving the Lord, the first thing we have to take care of is to me. It's to me, to me, to me. If you don't enjoy the triune God as grace, you can't have the for you. What is the for you going to be? It's just going to be you with your... It's terrible, right? But if, you, if you're enjoying the Lord, you're filled with grace, it, this grace was given to me for you. Which means, saints, there's a motivation for us to enjoy the Lord. Our motivation for enjoying the Lord is that we enjoy the Lord for others. 
we enjoy the Lord for others. If, uh, see, I enjoy the Lord for earnest, right? That's why I didn't want to come here not enjoying the Lord. Ernest might be concerned for me, right? So I want to enjoy the Lord for earnest. I want to enjoy the Lord for all of you. And you should enjoy the Lord for the saints, right? For the sake of the saints, sake of the church. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy the Lord. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the astronauts, they went to, some of them went to the moon. And one of them who looked back on the earth from the moon got saved. He got saved from going. For, listen, the Lord goes to a lot of trouble to get people saved. He took this man to the moon to get him saved. And, uh, and one time, they were circling the moon. And someone, someone had a Bible in the, uh, I don't know if it was a space shuttle or whatever. Anyway, had a Bible there. And everyone in the world was looking at them, circling the moon. And he, he began to read from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Everybody was there, wow, wow. Listen, I really believe with all my heart the Lord took them up there to read the Bible to the world, to the whole world. Uh, Listen, those moon rocks they got, they, they're not going to do anything to you. You know, I stood at the Smithsonian, and I went to the Smithsonian, and they have a line where you can touch a moon rock. So I waited till the line was low, was a little bit lower. And I stood there, I said, I want to touch a moon rock. So I touched it, nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened, right? There was no, uh, anyway, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I'm not saying we shouldn't go to the moon, but, but, uh, I believe that the Lord took them there to read the Bible to the world. Saints, I would like to go to the moon and say, everybody on earth, enjoy the Lord. (laughs) That would be wonderful. Okay, now, uh, we saw that the Jubilee is spoken of in Leviticus 25. And Leviticus, if you look in your recovery version, Leviticus was written in approximately 1490 B.C., 1490 before Christ was born, 1,490 years before Christ was born. Then in Isaiah 61, uh, the Lord mentions the, the God, God mentions the Jubilee again, and that was, uh, Isaiah was written in approximately 8 B.C., 8 B.C. So 700 years before Christ was born, uh, this was recorded in Isaiah. Now, 700 years later, the Lord goes to a synagogue. And I would like to read these verses again. Ricky read them last night, but I would like to read them again because this was a great moment in the history of the world. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and according to his custom, according to his custom, He entered on the Sabbath day into the synagogue and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll. You know, that's not easy to find a verse. If I hand you a scroll, right? They turn to Isaiah 61, you know, 
when we, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to announce the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to send away and release those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. So the whole New Testament age is the age of the Jubilee, is the year of the Jubilee. It says that when he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you imagine that? Imagine this scene. He's sitting down and everybody's looking at him. Like, what is he going to say next? And then it says, he began to say to him, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, what a momentous event in human history. And all bore witness to him and marveled at the words of grace proceeding out of his mouth. So, uh, the Jubilee, in reality, began there in that synagogue with the Lord Jesus. He's the reality of the Jubilee. Now, um, let's come to Roman number one. I'm going to depend on the outline a lot this morning, so I just pray that the outline would become rhema to you, would become God speaking to you. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pay attention to the outline. You know, uh, I'm sorry, before, before I get into the outline, I just wanted to tell you this. A lot of you know this, especially those of you from Philadelphia. You know, uh, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell, has an inscription on it. And it's cracked, right? It's cracked. And its inscription says is, is from Leviticus 25.10, which is on the Jubilee. And its inscription reads, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's King James Version. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. And so uh, the, uh, the colonists picked this up as part of their freedom, right? Uh, we need to proclaim liberty throughout the land. But listen, any liberty apart from Christ is just a cracked bell. Uh, it's not the real enjoyment of Christ, right? Uh, when you enjoy Christ, you are freed. So Roman number one says, announcing the gospel to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and sending away and release those who are oppressed are the freedoms and blessings of the Jubilee. Now, we all need to enjoy these freedoms and blessings, right? Just, we don't just enjoy them when we first get saved. We enjoy them after we're saved, right? Christ is our freedom. Christ is the reality of our Jubilee. Now, A says... I want you to pay attention to A. The word jubilee in Leviticus 25.10 means a time of shouting. A time of shouting. Can we say praise the Lord together? Praise the Lord. How about sisters? Brothers. Praise the Lord. Everyone. Praise the Lord. So good we can come to the meeting hall and shout. And shout praise the Lord. So... Uh, 
the word Hebrew word jubilee in Leviticus 25.10 means a time of shouting. Now listen to this. Or it means a time of the trumpeting of the ram's horn. Uh, you know, Ricky told me to say this just so you would be, I just want to cover Brother Ricky. Uh, you know, so we'd be absolutely correct in, our, in what we're saying. It wasn't a trumpeting of the silver trumpets. The silver trumpets were in Numbers 10, 1 through 10. And they were used to, when they were blown, they were used to gather the assembly and to set them out on their journey. And then they were blown over the offerings, over the burnt offerings and peace offerings. You can look at that later. But the Hebrew word for jubilee means the trumpeting of the ram's horn, the ram's horn. And, of course, Christ is the real ram. He's the strong Christ, the powerful Christ for our, our daily salvation. Now, this goes on. The trumpeting of the ram's horn signifies the preaching of the gospel as the proclaiming of liberty in the New Testament jubilee to all the sinners sold under sin that they may return to God. Well, saints, I don't know where all of you are this morning, but if you're away from God, return to God. Amen. Return to God. You know, I really, I really love uh, Luke, Luke 15, where, uh, and Brother Ricky shared this last night, where the prodigal son, he decided he was, he was, he was working in a pigsty. He was eating the food that the pigs ate. And he said, oh, my goodness. It says he came to himself. He came to himself. That means the spirit was operating on him to cause him to come to himself. And it says he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's hired servants, you know, eat way better than this? He said, I will return to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you make me as one of your hired servants. So uh, he had a speech worked up, and, uh, and uh, the father, he was returning to the father, and the father saw him from a long way off, and he knew it was his son. Listen, if you know someone, you could tell. They're way off. You could see by the shape, by their shape, that's Ed Marks there. <laughs> or that's Ernest there, right? You can tell. And so he knew this is my son. And so he didn't wait for his son to come to him. He ran toward his son. And he kissed his son affectionately. And his son began to come up with this speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And then in the, in the word, there's a but. B-U-T. But is a big word in the Bible. He, he interrupted the son's speech. He said, bring forth the best robe and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The best robe signifies Christ as the God-satisfying righteousness to cover the penitent sinner. To cover the penitent sinner. Bring out the best robe. Uh, put a ring on his finger. That signifies a sealing spirit. Put sandals on his feet. That's the power of God's salvation to separate us from this dirty world. And he said, and let us kill the fattened calf and let us eat and be what? Let us eat and be merry. Let us eat and be a fattened calf signifies the rich Christ killed on the cross for our enjoyment. And they went to the house and they ate 
and they were merry. That should be the church meeting. That should be the church meeting. Let us eat. Let us eat. The Lord is our spiritual food, and let us be merry. Let us be merry. So, it says that they may return to God and God's family, the household of God, and may rejoice with shouting in the New Testament enjoyment of God's salvation. Now, B says, our preaching of the gospel is our blowing of the trumpet of redemption to proclaim to the world. Let's read this together. Behold, now is the well-acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, the year of jubilee. I like this word now. Now. Now is the day of salvation. Right now. I mean, I mean right now. Right now. It's the day of salvation. And of course, uh, of course, the day of salvation is the year of Jubilee, which is the whole New Testament age. And the day of salvation is the time of our being reconciled to God, where we're no longer enemies of God, but where God has made us his friends, his friends, and we're reconciled to him. Now, under this one says, when God created man, he intended to give himself in Christ to man as man's possession, man's inheritance. So he wanted to give himself to man as the tree of life. Right, He presented himself to man as the tree of life. We know that man didn't partake of the tree of life. He partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so sin, the element of sin, got into his being, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Sin is a law in us. It's a spontaneous, uh, a spontaneous power. It's an automatic principle. It's the law of sin and of death. And so we have, we have a law of sin and of death in our flesh. Thank the Lord we'll see we have the law of the spirit of life in our spirit, Amen. which is more powerful than the law of sin and of death. But uh, anybody who's unsaved, especially, well, especially not just anyone who's unsaved, we have to realize, saints, this is an important realization. Our flesh never improves. Our flesh never improves. No matter how long you've been in the church life, your flesh never improves. You get transformed in your soul through transformation, and then your flesh will be glorified when the Lord returns. At the time of glorification, when he invades your mortal body with his life, the death in your mortal body will be swallowed up by life. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 4. So, uh, that's why we don't like the flesh. We like to stay away from the flesh. We like, we like to stay in our spirit, Amen. where the law of the spirit of life is. And, uh, you know, saints, th- this law, this law, I, I just, I just uh, can't help thinking of little, little children. Uh, they don't, you don't have to go to a school to learn how to lie. You know, little kids, they'll lie. And you didn't train them to lie. You didn't send them to lying 101. Uh, they just, they just, they have the law of sin and of death operating in them. Of course, if someone has a baby, you shouldn't tell them that, you know. But anyway, tell them he's going to get saved and come in the church life, come to the training. Hallelujah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one time I came home from work. 
And my boys came home from, from serving. My boys, I saw them running across the, the living room, running, chasing one another. And then I said, boys, what are you doing? And they, they stopped in their tracks like this. And they both said, he did it. He did I didn't know what they had done. He did it, but they pointed at one another. So one of them wasn't telling the truth, right? And this is the way we are when we're in our flesh. But saints, we've been returned to Christ as our good land. He's the good land in our spirit. We've got Genesis 13, 12 through 15. I love these verses because God took Abraham after Lot left him. And he said, Abraham, I want you to look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, and look to the west. Then he said, all the land that you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. Then he said, now walk in the land. Now, the land signifies Christ. So what does that mean? The Christ, and what that means is the Christ you see is the Christ you get. You can only experience the Christ that you see. The Christ you see is the Christ you get. The Christ you see is the Christ you walk in. You walk in. So that's Genesis 13, 12 through 15. He's also our dwelling place. Psalm 90, verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now it goes on to say, however, man became fallen. And in the fall, man lost God as his possession, lost God's possession, and sold himself into slavery under sin, Satan, and the world. So we lost God as our possession. We sold ourselves into slavery under sin, Satan, and the world. After, after man partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God decided to guard the way of the tree of life with a flaming sword turning every way and cherubim of glory uh, guarding the way to the tree of life. The, the flame signifies God's holiness. The sword signifies God's righteousness. The cherubim signify God's glory. So God's, God's righteousness, God's holiness, and God's glory were guarding the way to the tree of life. Now why did God do that? I always wondered, why did God do that? Why didn't he give him a second chance or something? Well, if he would have let them partake of the tree of life in their sinful nature, they would have lived forever with their sinful nature. You see what I mean? The tree of life is eternal life. So they would have lived forever in their sinful nature. This is before redemption. So, so he guarded the way to the tree of life until he could accomplish a redemption and meet the demands of God's righteousness, holiness, and glory on the cross so that we could partake of him as the tree of life. And, and in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Of him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Saints, you are in Christ Jesus this morning. And it says, Who became wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What is amazing to me is what happens in our salvation is Christ becomes wisdom to us from God. There's a transmission of Christ as wisdom to us, and the very attributes of God that guarded the way to the tree of life get dispensed into us. 
righteousness, holiness, and glory. Because it says, wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. That's holiness. He's our redemption. That's glory. That's the redemption of our body. So we enjoy all of those attributes so that we can partake of him as the tree of life. The tree of life. That's wonderful. Now, two says, God's New Testament salvation accomplished by God's grace based on his redemption in Christ brings fallen man back to God as his divine possession, releases man from slavery under sin, Satan, and the world, and restores man to his divine family, the household of God, that he may enjoy fellowship in God's grace. In God's grace. It's wonderful. There's a lot of verses there for you to read. I'll leave them to you to read later when you get into the, into the outline. Okay, now Roman numeral 2 says, God's salvation causes us to have real freedom. Amen. Our possession is God, and our freedom comes from our enjoyment of God. Amen. Our freedom comes from our enjoyment of God. You get freed from Satan's sin and death all your problems, all your worries, all your anxieties by enjoying God, Amen. by enjoying God. The Apostle Paul wrote an epistle to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth had a lot of problems, a lot of problems, lawsuits, immorality, uh, division. If you want to get encouraged with your church life, just read 1 Corinthians, and you'll say, man, we're way better than that, you know. Uh, but, but what Paul... What Paul opened up in 1 Corinthians was 20 aspects of Christ for our enjoyment. Because he realized if you don't enjoy the Lord, you, these problems can't be solved. These problems can't be solved. You need to enjoy the Lord. The enjoyment of Christ solves all the problems in the church life through the work of the cross. The cross is in that enjoyment. When you're enjoying the Lord, you, you get you get practically crucified with Christ. All the germs in you get crucified, you see? And then we enjoy him as resurrection power uh, in that enjoyment. So saints, again, all our problems are solved by enjoying the Lord. Amen. A says, if man does not enjoy God, he cannot have real freedom. Freedom means release, to be freed from all bondage, all heavy burden, all oppression, and all enslavement. B says everything in our life can be a bondage to us, and we can be slaves under any matter. We can be slaves under any matter. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, he said, I will not be brought under the power of anything. Of anything. In other words, the only thing I'll be brought under the power of is Christ. I'll be brought under his power. C says, first Satan captured us, and then he came to dwell in us as the inciter, the instigator of our sins. You know, Satanism is, is a really bad person, right? I mean, first, first uh, he came to dwell in us as sin, and then he's the inciter, the instigator of our sins. The instigator of our sins. And, 
And in Romans 12, 11, it says he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night, day and night. Can you imagine what a job title? You'd give me a card and say, I accuse the brothers day and night. That's what he does. He's accusing us, right, to, to take away our enjoyment of Christ. Don't listen to his accusations, even of other brothers and sisters, firstly, and you. Don't listen to those accusations. Say, no, Satan, I, that's, that's not right. And, and you reject his accusations, and you enjoy the Lord. You enjoy the Lord. Okay, he has become, the result is that he has become our legal master and we have become his captives to the extent that we are unable to do good and can only commit sins. That's where, where we, we are. We'll see what we get released from that. Now one says, if a man does not have God, whatever he tries to enjoy apart from God is dog food, refuse, and dung. Now that's pretty bad. Anything you try to enjoy apart from God is dog food, refuse, and dung. Paul said that with his background, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, he, had a, he had a religious background, which was a good background. But he says, I count all this as refuse, as dog food, as, as, uh, as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You know, that word gain Christ, the word gain there, you can also translate that as win, that I may win Christ, that I may win Christ. Saints, Christ is our prize. In this meeting, we came to gain more Christ. So he's our prize. We want to win him. We want to gain him. So he counted everything as dog food. You know, dog food in those days was terrible. It was just the rubbish. I've seen dogs like that in other countries, in uh, third world countries. You know, you look at the dogs and you just, oh, I feel sorry for the dogs there. You know, because I like dogs. Uh, and uh, and we, we spoil our dogs, right? You know, but, but in some countries, they don't. The dogs are just running wild and eating refuse and, and, and not like us. You know, we give our dogs food, dog food. And it's, sometimes it can be gourmet food. It can be really good. Don't, don't eat dog food. But anyway, uh, it can be good food, good food. But in those days, it was, it was the trash. It was the trash. Now, in 2 Peter 2.22, it says concerning the God-denying heretics that this has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog has returned to its own vomit and the wash so to wallowing in the mud. So anything other than Christ is our enjoyment is refuse, is vomit, and is mud. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to enjoy. Amen. Let's stay away from refuse, vomit, and mud, right? Look at two. Satan is called Beelzebul which means the Lord of the dunghill, from Beelzebub, meaning the Lord of flies. Satan specializes in leading sinners like flies to feed on dung. Isn't that terrible? That's terrible. He's the Lord of the flies. You may say, well, Brother Ed, I'm a CEO of my company. Well, you're the CEO maybe at the top of the dunghill. 
but you're still on the dunghill, right? We need to realize that, that, that the things, in the, things of the world is just, is just a dunghill. And he's the Lord of flies. Okay, three says, although deep in his heart no one wants to sin, everyone eventually sins. No one has control over himself, and everyone has become a slave of sin. The Lord says everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now in Roman numeral three, this is the good news. Roman numeral three is the good news. Paul's desperate cry in Romans 7.24. In Romans 7.24, in Romans 7, Paul was trying to keep the law. He was trying to keep the law. He was trying to be good. He was trying to please God. And uh, we, we'll see, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. If you try to please God, you try to do, be a good brother, you try to be a good sister, you have flipped on the wrong switch. The wrong switch. You have just switched on the law of sin and of death. So in Romans 7.24, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So it says, the desperate cry in Romans 7.24 is answered in Romans 8.2. Now Romans 8 is a chapter for desperate seekers. For desperate seekers. It's answered in Romans 8.2, which says that the law of the spirit of life has freed us in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. This is the freedom of Christ as the Jubilee, as the Jubilee. You know, uh, again, we have this word law here. You have the word law. The word law can mean a code of do's and don'ts, right? like the moral law, the, the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But this law that, that Paul was talking about here, and Paul made a great discovery. Paul saw that sin and death is a law, and the spirit of life is a law. And a law here means a spontaneous, an, I'm so sorry, an automatic principle, a spontaneous power. In other words, if I, if I take this book and I let go of it, you know what's going to happen, right? The law of gravity is going to win is going to win, right? If I was on the space shuttle, I could just leave go of this book and, what's your name, brother? Jason? Justin? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> I could just leave go of this book and it could float to Justin because I'm outside of the law of gravity. When you are in the law of the spirit of life, you are outside of the law of sin and of death. Amen. You are in a law that is more powerful than the law of sin and death. And a law, again, is a spontaneous power, an automatic principle, an innate automatic function. Now, when I, the, the best example I can use is when I was younger in junior high school, I wasn't a very good junior higher. You know, the Lord Jesus was the best junior hire that ever lived. If you, uh, I always say, if you serve the junior hires, you have to be an overcomer. Because they're not sitting there like this. Oh, Brother Ed, we want to hear the word, right? They're, they're laughing and giggling. And Anyway, you have to really pray before you serve the junior hires. Okay, but 
there's, there's another law other than the law of gravity. So, so what this teacher of mine would do, he was a former football player. He was a bit much bigger than me. He, uh, he would sit me in the back of the room, not no, sit me, make me stand, and then he would put books on my hand like this, on my hands, on my hands. Now, if I got you up here, brother, what is your name? Jonah. Jonah, yeah. right. I, I, forgive me, I forgot. I've seen your citizen moments. I'm a senior citizen today. <laughs> so if I had Jonah up here and I put a Bible in one hand and I put this book in another hand, I won't do that, Jonah, don't worry. Uh, eventually, gravity defeats you. you your hands, you can't, you can't win against the law of gravity. And I remember my hands would go down and he'd say, get them up, Marks. Get them up. I, oh. You know, it's so painful, right? Because the law of gravity is more powerful. Okay, the law of gravity signifies the law of sin and, de and of death. The law of sin and of death is more powerful than your will. More powerful than your will. If you look in Romans 7, Paul says, I will to do the good. The word I will is in there a lot. He says, but when I will to do the good, evil is right there with me. Evil is right there with me. So again, I say, if you will, you, you exercise your will to say, uh, I'm going to be a good brother. I'm going to be a good sister. I'm going to please God today. Uh, you've flipped on the wrong switch. Evil is right there with you. We'll see what, what you need to do as we go through this. A says, of course, Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has freed me in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. Isn't that good news? Amen. A says, We can be released and have real freedom only by enjoying Christ as the life-giving spirit. Only those who enjoy God do not commit sin and are really free. Amen. Living a life of liberty, release, and freedom from bondage. Amen. So we need to be those who enjoy Christ. Then the law of the spirit of life operates in us as a spontaneous power, as an automatic principle, just like the law of aerodynamics. And we soar. We soar above the law of sin and of death. Now, two says, if we do not enjoy the Lord sufficiently, we will still be in bondage to many things. Making up our mind will not work. We must continually come to the Lord to eat and enjoy him. So we should never graduate from eating and enjoying the Lord, right? Every day we have to eat and enjoy the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Actually, the word fellowship there uh, means enjoyment. It means joint participation in the Greek. It means a corporate enjoyment. God is faithful through whom you were called into the enjoyment of Jesus Christ his son. Uh, of Jesus Christ his son. Now, uh, of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know... One, one time, Brother Lee said, what does it mean to say God is faithful? God is faithful. We have our ideas about God is faithful. Oh, I made an A on a test. God is faithful. Oh, I got a new car. God is faithful. Uh, 
you know, good things happen to us. God is faithful. How about when you get a flat tire? Do you say God is faithful? Oh, God is faithful. <laughs> what is it to mean? What does it mean to be mean that it means God is faithful? What does this mean? It means God is faithful to take away all of our idols. Our our uh, you know our our wealth, even our health, uh, things in our environment uh, can become idols to us. And so God is faithful to take those away and lead us into the enjoyment of Christ. And lead us into the enjoyment of Christ. Now we come to three. Only those who enjoy God do not practice sin and are really free. And are really free. Four says, Christ as the Jubilee frees us from our poverty captivity, blindness, and oppression. It's amazing that Ecclesiastes begins with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And this word can be translated emptiness. Emptiness of emptinesses. All is emptiness. Vapor of vapors. All is a vapor. Futility of futilities. All is futile. I remember when I graduated, when I just graduated from college, I went to Houston and got a job with a, with a big oil company. And I would get on the elevator. This is just before I got saved. I would get on the elevator and uh, go up to the 20th floor and go to my cubicle. You know those cubicles? I don't like those. Anyway, go to my cubicle. You know, because I, I have a loud voice, so when I was on the phone, everyone could hear me, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I'd go to my cubicle. Then after work was over, I would go back on the elevator, go down, go home, eat, go to bed, come back in the morning, get on the elevator, go up, go down, go home, eat, go to sleep, go back. Get on, the, get on the elevator, go to the 24. I said, my life is over. <laughs> my life is over. I, you know, people might, might think, oh, this man, he's, he's going up in the world. You know, he's going to the 20th floor. But I, I realized my life is over. It is vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Solomon said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. But in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, God has put eternity in man's heart. Can you imagine that? God has put eternity in man's heart. And that word for eternity means a divinely implanted sense of a purpose working throughout the ages, which nothing under the sun but only God can satisfy. Isn't that wonderful? He put eternity in our hearts, in our hearts. Now in Luke 12, 21, this says, So is he who, who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, I'd like to read the context here from, from the Bible. Let's see, Luke 12, 21. Okay, 
It says this, he told them a parable saying the land of a certain rich man brought forth abundantly. And he reasoned in himself saying, what shall I do for I have no place where I may gather my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will give to LME. No, he didn't say that. I will give my surplus to the church. He didn't say that. He said, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will gather there all my wheat and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, foolish one, this night they are requiring your soul from you. And the things which you have prepared, whose will they be? Then it says, so is he who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Saints, we all need to pray, Lord, make me rich toward God. Make me a person who's, when, when I'm in God's presence, he says, this man is not poor, he's rich with me. He, he's enjoying my unsearchable riches. You know, to the, to the church in Laodicea, he says, because you say, I am wealthy, this is Revelation 3.17, and have become rich and have need of nothing. Can you imagine? Now, these are believers. They said, oh, we've become wealthy. We've become rich. We have need of nothing. That's a terrible place to be. Sometimes I get concerned for the young people. Uh, this uh, trainee gave a testimony this past Wednesday. He said, oh, I saw the title to the message, and I, I thought, oh, we're familiar with this. We've heard this before. And I realized this is just terminology to him. It's not his experience, you know. Uh, but you say, I'm wealthy. I've become rich. And I have need of nothing. That's a terrible state to be in. Terrible state to be in. I know what Ricky's going to say before he says it. I have need of nothing. But it says, you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor. And poor in what? Poor in life. Poor in the growth in life. And blind and naked. So he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe yourself, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. In other words, pay the price to enjoy God the Father as gold. To enjoy God the Son as your white garments of righteousness. To enjoy God the Spirit as your anointing eye salve. To anoint your eyes that you might really see Christ. Saints, we came here to see Christ this morning. Now, B says, Paul made a great discovery in receiving the revelation of the triune God being processed through incarnation, human living, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to become the law of the spirit of life installed in our spirit. So the law of the spirit of life is installed in our spirit. He doesn't need to make another installation. The law of the spirit of life is installed in your spirit. So all these verses tell us this. It says, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Who indwells you. You know, in Romans 8, 
You have the word zoe used. Zoe is a word for life. And maybe there's some new ones here. There are three Greek words for life. Bios, which signifies our physical life. Suke, that's P-S-U-C-H-E, which signifies our psychological life, which is the study of the mind. So you have biology, you have psychology. But you can't go to college and get a degree in zoology. You can get a degree in zoology, but not zoology. Because zoe signifies the divine, uncreated, eternal life of the triune God. Amen. And that's what we want. We want zoe. And he gives life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells us. Many times when we come to the meetings, we don't come like this. You know, we, we don't come. We come like Joseph. Just take my bones into the good land. When I <laughs> get my bones in the chair, right? But when we leave the meeting, we're full of joy. We're full of joy. Why? Because the Spirit has given Zoe to our mortal bodies as a foretaste, as a foretaste of the full taste when, when we're raptured. Now, C says, the law of the Spirit of life is the automatic principle and spontaneous power of the divine life. It is the natural characteristic and the innate automatic function of the divine life. D says a Christian should not live by the power of his will, but by the power of the inner law of the spirit of resurrection life in his spirit. This law possesses the greatest power. It overcomes death, transcends death, and is not bound by death. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. To enjoy the Lord, you transcend death. You're not bound by death. Amen. Okay, all these verses, again, there's a lot of verses here. Uh, but I, I have to go on for the sake of time. I want, I want to give you plenty of time to testify. Um, let me consider. Okay, now... Let's go to one. In Romans 7, Paul describes the wretchedness of his trying to do good under the law. He needed the Lord as the compassionate Samaritan neighbor to care for him as a fallen and law-stricken sinner by dispensing himself into him as the law of the spirit of life for the reality of the body of Christ. Now, when we, we read Luke 10, 25 through 37, even many unbelievers are familiar with this. They say, oh, I need to be a good Samaritan. Uh, I think they have a Samaritan law in France where you're supposed to stop if somebody has an accident. And, but we have to see who the Samaritan is in this parable that the Lord spoke. It says, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God from, all, from your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with your whole strength, and with your whole mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the Lord said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall have life. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, we need, we need to see from the, we need to drop our concepts 
and see from this, from the Bible, who his neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Okay, let's go on. Jesus, taking up the question, said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going down. He fell among robbers, who having both stripped him and beaten him, went away and leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. And likewise also a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the opposite side. But a certain Samaritan who was journeying came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. Now, who is his neighbor? His neighbor was that Samaritan. That was, that was his good neighbor. And, and you know, the, the opposition, the, oppos- the religious persecutors, they called the Lord a Samaritan. Here's, a Samaritan was, was a, bad, uh, a bad word in those days, for, to be a Jewish person and not be wholly Jewish, have half Jewish, half Gentile. That's me. Uh, I always tell people I'm a Samaritan. Okay, anyway, if you don't get that, that's fine. Okay. It says, but a, <laughs> a certain Samaritan who was journeying came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. And he came to him and bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on them. And placing him on his own beast, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend in addition to this, when I return, I will repay you. Then he said, Which of these three does it seem to you has become a neighbor to him who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. The one who showed mercy to him typifies the Lord Jesus as his Samaritan neighbor. So to love your neighbor as yourself is to love the Lord Jesus. He's your neighbor. How can you get up and and you've been stripped, you've been beaten, you're laying on the ground. How can you get up and, and help people, right? You need to be helped. You need oil and wine poured into your wounds, right? You need the spirit poured into your wounds. You need the divine life poured into your wounds. You need, uh, you need someone to place you on his own beast. That's your car. And bring you to an inn. That's the church. And, take, and he took care of him. And then the next day he took out 200 denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever you spend in addition to this, when I return, I will repay you. Isn't that wonderful? So what that means is that the Lord blesses the church for your sake. For your sake. He gives the church riches for your sake. So that you can enjoy those riches and be fully healed. So the Lord is our Samaritan neighbor. He's our Samaritan neighbor. I hope you see this. I hope you see this. And we need to love our neighbor. Oh, praise the Lord. The Lord Jesus is my neighbor. I need a neighbor. A capital N neighbor. And I have a capital N neighbor in my spirit. Now, two says, we must see that sin and death are a law in us and that our willpower 
cannot overcome this law. In Romans 7, the word I will is used frequently. 3 says, if we have not seen that sin is a law and that our will can never overcome this law, we are trapped in Romans 7. We will never arrive at Romans 8. Saints, Romans 7 describes Paul's experience before he got saved. But Romans 7 is the experience of most believers after they get saved. After they get saved. And so we can be trapped in Romans 7. What we need to see is number four. Every life has a law and even is a law. God's life is the highest life and the law of the spirit of life is the highest law. It's the highest spontaneous power the highest automatic principle, the highest innate automatic function. So in Proverbs 30, 19, uh, the one writing these Proverbs said, certain things are too wonderful for me. I can't attain to them. And the first thing he said was the way of an eagle in the sky. The way of an eagle in the sky. You know, that's, that's the law of the life of the eagle, right? You know, I don't know how eagles do it, but eventually the mother kind of pushes the little ones out of the nest and, and they don't go, oh, which wing should I do first? And the, there's the law of the eagle life and they just fly, they just soar. And so when we enjoy the Lord, we are on Eagle Airlines. <laughs> We're on eagle, a real eagle. He's the real eagle. The way of an eagle in the sky. You know, my dog, he has his life. He has the, the law of the life of a dog. And no one taught him to dig holes. But he just digs holes. And my wife said, I gave him a bone. And my wife said, Ed, he's going to just dig a hole and bury that. You know, and no one taught him. He just loves to dig holes. I don't go out and dig holes. But he does because he has the law of the dog life. It's spontaneous. It's automatic, it's effortless, and it's unconscious. So when we're enjoying the Lord, we're enjoying that life spontaneously, effortlessly, unconsciously, and automatically. Now, of course, Isaiah 40, 30-31 confirms this. It says, although youths will faint and become weary, and young men will collapse exhausted, Yet those who wait on Jehovah will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and will not become weary. They will walk and will not faint. So 5 says, The divine birth has transferred us into a new realm. The realm of the divine life with its law in our spirit. A realm in which there is no sin, world, or flesh. And he says, in this realm, all victories are spontaneous, automatic, unconscious, and effortless. I underline those words. All victories are spontaneous, automatic, unconscious, and effortless. Because the law of the spirit of life is upholding us, not our own will. You know, we have a law of digestion even. We have lots of law. The law of the peach tree, you could say, produces peaches. When you digest something and assimilate it, there's a law that takes place in you, right? That I don't know what kind of law, I'm not a biologist, but uh, there's a law of digestion that it, 
and you assimilate the food and it becomes part of your cell structure, part of your cell structure. It's spontaneous, it's automatic, it's unconscious, it's effortless. I mean, I had a, I had a smoothie for breakfast this morning and I'm not conscious of it right now. If I was conscious of it, I'd be sick. You know what I mean? I'd say, oh, you're conscious of it, right? But you're not conscious of a law. You're not conscious of a spontaneous power, an automatic principle of the law of the spirit of life. It's unconscious. It's effortless. It's spontaneous. And it's automatic. Now, B says, we have the law of the spirit of life indwelling our spirit as the presence of God, the speaking of God, the meeting with God, and the dispensing of God. He says, we can cooperate with the installed and inner-operating law of the spirit of life by exercising our spirit. Exercise your spirit to switch on this law so that we can enjoy Christ as the freedom and living of the Jubilee. Now, if the lights were out in this hall, I wouldn't call the power plant and say, hey, you know, our lights are off. What, what, what's going on there in the power plant? And the, the man would say, stupid man, just turn on the switch. Just flick the switch. It's, listen, the, tri- the process train God has been installed in us. We just need to switch him on as the divine electricity. How do we switch him on? We exercise our spirit. And, of course, there's many ways to exercise our spirit. We call on the Lord. We praise the Lord fellowship with the saints, preach the gospel, read the Bible prayerfully. Uh, Many ways to switch on this law, to switch on this law. And it's so that we can enjoy Christ as the freedom and living of the Jubilee. Saints, it's so wonderful that we know that we have the spirit and that we can exercise our spirit. It's really a wonderful discovery, wonderful discovery. F says, apart from the switch of our spirit, we have no way to apply the process trying God as the heavenly electricity in us. But praise the Lord that we have a switch and that we know where it is. We know where it is. We know that the spirit of man is the lamp of Jehovah. We know in Zechariah 12, God stretched forth the heavens. He laid the foundation of the earth and he formed the spirit of man within him. And in Romans 8, 16, it says, The Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. That we are the children of God. So we have a switch. We know where it is. That switch is our spirit. One time I went to one locality, and the brothers came to me, and they asked this question. They said, Ed, this one saint came to us and said, I've tried everything in the church life. I went to the meetings. I read the books. uh, I did everything that was asked of me. But nothing works. Nothing works. He said, Ed, what should we say to this person? How should we help him? Ernest, what would you say to this person? Enjoy the law. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I said, Ernest. Here's what I said. If you don't exercise your spirit, nothing works. Nothing works if you don't exercise your spirit to enjoy the Lord. If I don't exercise my spirit, nothing works. Because only your spirit can touch Christ as the life-giving spirit. 
So we need to exercise our spirit. We need to pay attention to our spirit. We need to use our spirit. We need to care for our spirit. Gene says, the best way to switch on the divine and mystical current of the flowing spirit in our spirit is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's rich to all who call upon him. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's not just initial salvation, that's salvation in our daily life. H says, when we contact the spirit through the exercise of our spirit, we enjoy Christ as all the myriad and rich aspects of the Jubilee. I says, Paul was a person who switched on the law of the spirit of life by serving God in his spirit out of his first love for the Lord. Out of his first love for the Lord. So, we need, to, we need to pray, Lord, I'd like to serve you in my spirit today in the gospel of your son. And I'd like you to be my witness that I'm doing this. Now, what does it mean to love the Lord with the first love? Look at one. Some people think to love the Lord with the first love is to love him with the love when we got saved. You know, we got saved and, or we came in the church life and everything was wonderful and glorious. And, and we just, that, we were so much in love with the Lord Jesus uh, and some people think the first love is that, to return to that. Well, I wouldn't say that's wrong. But the best definition of the first love is in one. To love the Lord with the first love is to give him the first place in all things and in all matters, regarding him as everything in our life. You give him the first place in all things. That means practically you check with him about everything. You check with him. Lord, Lord what shall I do? Lord, what do you want to do here? What do you want, what do you want me to buy? What do you, you're checking with him all the time. You're depending on him in every matter and in everything. Now look at two. Two is precious. When God comes into us and comes out of us, that is our service to him. We work together with Christ in the churches where we render our first love to him. And we work together with him. We work together with him. You know, uh, there's a footnote, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. It says that Paul and his co-workers worked together with God by a life, not by any gift that was all-sufficient and all-mature, able to fit all situations. Saints, our life doesn't fit in the church life, but his life fits in all situations. No matter how the church meeting is going, whether it's up, whether it's down, whether it's in, whether it's out, his life fits in all situations. It's able to endure any kind of treatment. It's able to accept any kind of environment. It's able to work in any kind of, con any kind of condition and to take any kind of opportunity for the carrying out of the ministry, for the carrying out of the ministry. Okay, now we're on three, right? When we love the Lord with the first love, we do the first works. I always wondered what the first works were. Because the Lord says in Revelation, he says, unless you repent and do the first works, I will remove your lampstand from your place. So if we don't have the first love for the Lord, if we don't take him as everything in our life, and we don't have the first works, then he'll remove the testimony. The lampstand signifies a triune God. The gold signifies God the Father in his divine nature. The shape signifies Christ the Son as the image of the invisible God. And the seven lamps signify the sevenfold intensified spirit as the application of the triune God. So, uh, 
you can be meeting as a church, but if you aren't enjoying the Lord, if everyone isn't enjoying the Lord, the Lord can come and remove the lampstand from its place. And so you're meeting there as an empty shell. We don't want that to happen. We want to do the first, we want to have the first love and do the first works. Now, what are the first works? Works that issue from and express the first love. When you, when you serve, it should express your first love for the Lord. That's the first works. Only these works are motivated, motivated by the first love. Only those works that are motivated by the first love are gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, I like number four. Christ's love of affection constrains us to live to him and to die to him. To live to him, and it doesn't say live for him. It says live to him and die to him. Now, what does it mean to live to the Lord, to live to the Lord? It means that we are determined to gain the honor of being well-pleasing to him. And uh, by being absolutely under his control, direction, and governing, and that we care uniquely for his aims, his goals, his desires, and his preferences. You see, I can, Justin, Jonah, I'm sorry, forgive me. Okay, another senior citizen moment. Okay, Jonah. Jonah, uh, I could love you very much, and I do love you. Uh, when I see you testify, I just, oh, that brother is so dear. And even though I'm, I get to slip up on your name. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I could love you, but my love can be, it's, it's not, I'm not living to you. I'm living for you. And so uh, I say, oh, I'm going to fix Jonah a meal, a meal, because I love him so much. So I go and fix him sea cucumber, sea cucumber. Do you like that, Jonah? You don't like that, right? But it's good for you. It's good for you. But so I'm living, I'm not living to you. I'm living for you. You see what I mean? I'm not living for your aims, your goals, your desires, your preferences, uh, your particular need. I've had sea cucumber twice, and I'm not going to make it to a third time. <laughs> I'm not against sea cucumber. Don't get me wrong. I know a lot of brothers who like it very much. To me, it's like eating a tire. <laughs> it's very, very hard to, to eat for me. <laughs> okay. Maybe because I didn't grow up with it. But one time I gave this example of living to the Lord, living to the Lord, to care for his aims, his desires, his pleasure, and his preference. I gave an example of Brother Lee. One time I was working with Brother Lee, and he, uh, the brothers told me, Ed, after you get done working with Brother Lee, invite him to lunch so he can have lunch with us. I said, okay, okay, brothers. So Brother Lee and I prayed, we, we labored, and then after we were done, I said, Brother Lee, the brothers want to have lunch with you. We want to have lunch with you today. He said, oh, that's wonderful. He said, Sister Lee, can I have lunch with the brothers? Ed invited me to lunch. She said, yes. He said, praise the Lord. <laughs> he was so happy. And so we were walking down Ball Road, and many of you know where Ball Road is. We were walking down Ball Road, and we came in the door, 
And this sister saw Brother Lee, and she, she, she cooked Brother Lee some health food. Now, I don't know what it was, but it was, you know, sprouts, I don't know, things like that, you know. And she brought it to Brother Lee, and Brother Lee looked at it. He said, Sister, you love me with no revelation. <laughs> he said, I want a hamburger. I want a hamburger, because all the brothers were having hamburgers. So that, that probably was his hamburger for the next five years, you know. Uh, he had a hamburger that day. I helped him. I said, what do you want on it, brother? He said, put everything on it, Ed. Put everything on it. Well, that's to live to a person, not to live for a person. Just for a person. Now, Jay says... By setting our mind on the spirit, we enjoy Christ as a jubilee. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Saints, to set our mind on the spirit is to pay attention to your spirit. Pay attention to your spirit. Use your spirit. Employ your spirit. Take care of your spirit. Uh, exercise your spirit. This is to have the mind set on the spirit. Pay attention to your spirit. When you're, you know, maybe you're making a move or something, a physical move, you have to pay attention to your spirit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, he said, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother. So taking my leave of them, I went forth into Macedonia. That's in chapter 2. When you come to chapter 7, he says, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. So on the one hand, you have the rest in the spirit and the rest in the flesh. But when he had no rest in his flesh, he had the rest in his spirit. So pay attention to your spirit. Now look at K. I highlighted K. This is absolutely wonderful. The Jubilee in Romans 8 is the reality of the body of Christ. And let me just share with you just a little bit. And then we'll get through the rest of the outline quickly. You know, Romans 8, Romans 9 is a direct continuation of Romans. I'm sorry, not Romans 9. Romans 12 is a direct continuation of Romans 8. Romans 9 through 11 is parenthetical. Romans 9 through 11 talks about God's sovereignty, God's choosing. And so you have to go to see the continuation. You have to go to Romans 12 through 16. You can only enter into the body life and into the reality of the local churches if you are enjoying Christ as the law of the spirit of life. So this is the reality of the body of Christ, the corporate living of the perfected God-men displayed in Romans 12 through 16. This reality consummates in the new Jerusalem. Isn't that wonderful? Saints, we need to pray, Lord, bring my living into Romans 8. Thus, Romans 8 is the focus of the entire Bible and the center of the universe. So when you are enjoying Christ as the law of the spirit of life, you are in the center of the universe. Don't you want to live in the center of the universe? That wasn't a loud amen. Do you want to live in the center of the universe? Very good. Very good. Okay, the law of the spirit of life constitutes us to be members of the body of Christ with all kinds of functions. Three says, through the spontaneous, automatic function of the law of the spirit of life within us, we are enabled to know God, gain God, and thereby live God, causing us to be constituted with God, 
that we may become his increase and his enlargement to be his fullness for his expression. Okay, now we come to Roman numeral four. Roman numeral four. The living of the Jubilee is a living in the enjoyment of Christ, a living of enjoying God as our inheritance and real freedom. Let's read A together. Isn't that wonderful? Eat the Lord Jesus as the real produce of the good land. Take him as our dwelling place for our rest and be freed from the slavery of sin and from the bondage of law and religion. Now we come to B. The only way to be released from three kinds of labor in human life. There are three kinds of labor in human life. Look at this. The labor to be a good person. That's a labor to try to be a good person. You're trying to be a good person. And it's a heavy labor, a heavy labor. The labor of anxiety. Anxiety is a labor. The labor of suffering. Suffering is a labor. The only way to be released from these three kinds of labor is to take Christ as our enjoyment, satisfaction, and rest. Then C says the Christian life should be a life full of enjoying the Lord. A life full of joy and praises. When we enjoy the Lord fully, he becomes our jubilee. Amen. Then one says, the tone of an overcoming life is the tone of rejoicing, thanking, and praising God continually. Amen. The tone of an overcoming life. We should have this tone in our daily life. We're rejoicing. We're thanking. We're praising God continually. Uh, you know... In Chinese, they have tones, and, and I don't know, uh, oh, yeah, David, you know Chinese, like, like the word ma. I think there's five tones, right? Four tones. Can you say the four tones? Ma, 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 ma. Wow. I could never do that. Four tones. I think one means mother, right? Another means horse. So if you, call, if you call your mother a horse, you're going to be in big trouble. You've got the wrong tone. You've got the wrong tone. We need the tone of an overcoming life. Amen. Two says the overcoming life can survive only in an environment of thanksgiving and praise. All these verses are wonderful. I encourage you to read them later. His D, the living of the Jubilee, is a life in which we take God himself, Christ himself, in every situation. Then he becomes the primary factor and center in us to lead us and overrule all the troubles of human life. Amen. He says, Paul learned the secret of living in the Jubilee, the secret of gaining Christ in, every, in any kind of environment. In any kind of environment. Then F says... Because everything is under his sovereignty, we should pray. Let's pray this together. Lord, fill me, gain me, and possess me. No matter what my outward situation is, I just want to enjoy you. So we need to be today's ministers and witnesses by living and proclaiming the gospel 
Christ as the jubilee of grace for the accomplishing of God's eternal economy. Okay, I'll stop here. Uh, if we could, I think it's very helpful to, to pray with our neighbor for a minute or so. Uh, if you can do that, let's do that, and then we'll have some testimonies.